Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. I'm happy to have physical therapist and expert bike fitter Phil Burt as my guest today on the CoachCast. For 12 years, Phil was an integral part of British Cycling and Team Sky's success, during which he worked as the lead physiotherapist at three Olympic Games and seven Tours de France. Besides conducting bike fits for the likes of Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome, Phil also currently works with both men's and women's British triathlon squads. Phil has authored two books, Bike Fit and Strength and Conditioning for Cyclists. Several years ago, he launched Phil Burt Innovation, a bike fitting company where athletes at every level can now hire Phil to help them get better on the bike by improving their health, comfort, and performance. I hope you enjoy the show and get some tips that can help you and your athletes get the most out of your next cycling adventure. Phil, thanks for joining me today. I, you know, I think uh, last time I saw you in person, can't remember what exactly year that was, but it was Endurance Coaching Summit in Manchester, correct? That's right. Yeah. The Manchester Institute of Health and Performance where I'm based now. Yeah. I think that was the first time you guys have ever gone overseas. Is that correct? Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Uh, been over there a couple of times. They're supposed to be there 2020, but obviously COVID kind of put a kink in everything. So uh, hopefully we'll make it back again someday and see you over there. Um, I remember your, your talk um, was actually in the lab, right? In, in the bike fitting lab where you did some hands-on um, education. Yeah, that was right. Um, I think you guys did a really cool thing where um, there was some um, all together stuff, and then breakout groups, wasn't it? Where yeah, small groups yeah. of coaches could go around and look at different things, and was testing and stuff. So I just explained what we do for our process, and um, maybe some of the stuff we explored today. Why position is important, you know, for anybody who's um, trying to achieve what they want to do on a bike, be it triathlon, cycling on its own, or whatever, you know. And, and talking through the process and asked some good questions, and I, I enjoyed it actually because. Uh, really interesting there i asked a hard question which was how many people can a coach coach well <laughs> which i think i've got some <laughs> interesting responses some people yeah some coaches are in great demand you know and they have to spread themselves around but it's just um i'm always fascinated um, having worked in elite sport for a long time uh, i don't think people have realized how hard uh, coaching can actually be you know or being coached as well yeah well how many people can a good good bike fitter fit <laughs> ah, well that, that's back at you <laughs> well, right back at me and then you're absolutely right i've actually decreased it because i that's a bloody good question actually really good um i i, I <laughs> and part of the reason why only um since leaving uh, british cycling team sky blah 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 uh, two and a half three years ago i um half the business is looking at developing better cycling kit because i think i can only really see six people a week effectively you know so i do two a day our process is pretty intensive um, mm. i put a lot of store in education and uh but i'm to be honest with you i'm tired of talking by the end of those you know and i think um, <laughs> yeah if you if you if you want to make more money you can chunk through them but i really our process is more about evolution rather than revolution and not selling stuff. So getting to know the people we follow up and stuff. So yeah, I've, I've, I've known my color. I work three days a week on that stuff. But the big thing is that if, if I can make a cycling, um, for example, a, a better short, I can help a hundred thousand people. 
but I can only help so many people. Yeah, there's only so many hours in the day that anyone can coach or bike fit. But uh, a good friend of mine once said, you know, that your know, product sits there and sells all around the world, doesn't it? You know, as as you well know with your business. Right. Yeah. You know, I kind of jumped ahead of ourselves here, but I'd love to kind of backtrack a bit and hear more about your evolution, education background, your physical therapist as well, a physio, as you, you folks say. Yeah. Um, you know, can, give us a little background on how you got to this point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so I joined British Cycling Team in 2006. Uh, I'm a physiotherapist uh, by training, uh, and I worked in um, the NHS in England, in Australia, New Zealand, and now in France um, uh, in a ski resort, <laughs> managing a clinic there. And I came back to the UK, nice. and uh, I worked in rugby, rugby union, which is probably akin to working in NFL in, in the States or whatever. But um, right. that's a real... A great education and physical trauma you know <laughs> in terms of you are a very busy person long long weeks you get very good at your hands-on skills and assessments and rehabilitation but um it's a bit i think rugby's a bit it's a bit like nfl it's like, like piling 15 guys into a minibus every week and knowing that minibus is going <laughs> to drive into another minibus and seeing the outcome so it becomes a, it, <laughs> it, it, it it's a bit sane but uh, and that's my sport so i loved it you know but so I, I joined the cycling team and we were on the you know um it's an exciting time in this country in that when you get a home Olympics, you know, that really focuses right. and the government put a lot of money into it. So I worked with lots of different sports for the English Institute of Sport, not only cycling, but exposed to like I did a lot of work for water polo, which is an amazing sport if anyone's never it's just mm. unbelievable. Swimming, rugby and and um skill all in one you know, ball skills in one foot. But um yeah, I started with my journey with British Cycling and the reason so I have a phys- I'm a physiotherapist or physical therapist, and my job was to look after that team. And then Team Sky started. I was part of helping set that up and what it looked like at the beginning and how it evolved. And that was brilliant, you know, to win a Tour de France with a British guy never been done before. And of course, three Olympics. I went to Beijing, uh, London, and Rio, where the British cycling team were, you know, incredibly successful both on the track and in the road and time trial. I, I had to become very aware of the implications of equipment and position in cycling because. Um, and I see a lot of people who uh, cycling is a completely different sport because the equipment is so important and the position. So you often see someone with a knee injury and you go, I can't see anything going on here. You know, for most, a lot of physios, you're know, used to running or twisting and turning injuries. You look at a cyclist and it's, well, what's going on here? You know, and sometimes it, it isn't right. actually a physical limitation injury. It's something, yeah, the most common thing. I always remember the first time someone came in quite famous, you know, and said, I've just changed my shoes, cleats and pedals and now I've got this raging knee pain and that's the thing in the history which is obviously singing out that it's the problem. So consequently, I um, went, decided, took it upon myself to try and become more educated and well, what are these things? Because sometimes you can spend all your time treating somebody but if you can't get to the root cause of it, then you're never, they're never right. going to get fully better. So that's why I became interested in, uh, I would say ergonomics more than bite fit, bite fit is part of that, that amazing interface between a human being and a machine. Yeah. I mean, you transcend just the bike fit being the, the physio, you know, background that you have, um, that, that assessment of, of potential risk as well. You know, you sort of have some of that knowledge within you as well. So once you go through, you mentioned you can only do, you know, about two a day, six a week, what, what does that process look like for you when someone comes in? Does it start before they even step in your front door? Or how, how's, how's the process yeah. work? So people get in contact and we'll often ask for, you know, um, okay, why are you coming in? We have a bit of a, not a questionnaire, but we 
some people like to give a lot of information, some don't, and some people send essays, some people just like to talk to you in person. But you're, you're right, so that, that process is about um, a 90 to 120 minute process in person, but then we follow up afterwards with it. But the, I have to say, Dirk, the most important bit is the first 20 minutes, which is where we sit down, and I don't think anybody can do a, do a successful bike fix session without understanding what the goal is you know so sometimes right. that's injury medical need discomfort you know oh, i've got raging cells or anything but other times it'll be oh, i want to go faster you know or i want to be the best i can or i want to be optimal or i'm buying a new bike i want to make sure i'm in that you know it, it's interesting that, that in what i was taught in one of the best doctors i ever worked with said that it's always in the history at all that that the history is that goal setting bit if you ask me you know they tell you the nugget of information that really unlocks maybe what they've been struggling with or what's going to have the most success you know and right. we'll often refer back to that you know and say at the beginnings and i think if you people feel listened to in my experience that's the skill of a condition i think if anyone's listening on the on the podcast you know you've been to see a doctor um or physio you know the, the most unhappy experience of that is where you don't think they've listened to you or they've dismissed what you think's going on you know and so I, it just takes time with people you know people want to be listened to and if you you, you half the treatment for me in, in any physio or medical consultation is the fact that you need to have a clear diagnosis and that's both of the person's issue or condition or what or their goal they want to do but also them and making sure that they feel like all the research shows that you know people are much more emphatically uh, rehabbed better when they feel like they've been engaged and listened to and compliance with exercise prescription for example just drops off a cliff if they don't understand why they're doing it so yeah a, a lot goes into chatting at the beginning yeah and then from there um are you looking at any range of motion um flexibility yeah yes etc or is it direct on the bike no no so it'd be remiss of me to dismiss my years of training as a physio and as you say that's my advantage i I feel sorry for a lot of um, bike fitters who haven't got that medical knowledge because that's where bike fit often ends up stuck or in a dead end doesn't it you know there's a there's a medical or musculoskeletal limitation restriction in the way and i've got the skill set to be able to unpick that so yeah we start with an off the but before we get even near the bikes off bike analysis um so we understand the old mantra you know you've probably heard it millions of times you're adaptable and the bike is adjustable right. you have to find which one of those is going to be able to move the most and so, so sometimes right. you have to have that conversation where okay we can we can adjust the environment that you're interacting with i.e the bike to help you with these problems but actually you're going to have to do a little bit of work the the easy thing to do is to adjust because that's instant you through that initial pro assessment process which is talking to them and then looking at them you can start to get an idea you know there's no i'm a bit more of a realist in that i'm not one of these um physiotherapist theory I think everybody has to be perfect you know some guy comes into me and he you know he loves riding his bike or triathlon I'm a, but he's got a hard job you know that's the thing that gives him the money and time to do that but it's sitting at a desk we have to be realistic about what his lumbar pelvic movement like, might be like you know because he he's not right. got all day to do all of it so I think that's you know again people get frustrated they get told to do things that they simply haven't got enough time in the day I'll give you a great example of that actually a little anecdotal story is when Bradley Wiggins joined, um, I think it was a T-Mobile, actually, they, he went to a Californian camp. This is way back 2008, nine, probably sometime. I'll probably get corrected on that. But he came back with a CD of exercises. So he'd been assessed, and some of your listeners will appreciate this, been through this full assessment of all his movements off the bike, and he had 27 different exercises to do per day. Now, <laughs> he came with the CD yeah. and went, I did all these day yesterday. 
and I didn't have enough time to ride my bike. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sometimes not one of those exercises wouldn't make someone better at moving. They're all fantastic, you know, and all things that he could get better at. But you've, you've got to manage it. You've got to deliver something that will, A, deliver your bang for your buck, and, and B, you know, that he can do and then still do his main job, which is riding the bike. So I think it's all about seeing the animal in front of you and um, prescribing effectively for them something that they're going to engage with, you know. Right. And I love that you said, uh, you know, adapt versus adjust. And when people think bike fit, they're, they really focus on the adjust, you know, like I need to change my saddle height. And, but yet there's so much on the adapt side on the, on, you know, those uh, mobility type exercises, et cetera, even though you don't maybe assign 29 exercises a day to do, are is that still um, a, a good part of your recommendation for a lot of the folks you see in terms of the the adapt side? Are you giving yeah. prescription to to do uh, for mobility, strength, range of motion, et cetera? Yes, you're absolutely right. It, you know, there's the adapt point is if someone again it comes back to the goal. If the goal is quite high, you know, or something to achieve, and way away from them, that how are you going to bridge that gap? You know, you can't do it all by just changing the bike setup. It's, they're going to have to adapt, just as they're going to have to adapt well to their training program so i have to um and for different people right. that's different levels so you're absolutely right so, um might be a good idea to introduce the concept of micro adjusters and macro absorbers mm. because that helps explain right. that why that's more important to certain people my example of it is ben swift it's in my book bike fit so it's fine with me saying this is a you know he's an amazing bike rider but you know he's one of these guys who's always adjusting position always adjusting his training slightly because he has to he's on a real knife edge you know he he's falling off onto underperformance or injury, his little plateau at the top of the peak of performance is really small and he's really effective. Mm -hmm. But so small changes to things like position or training can make a massive difference to him. And some people might resonate with that with them if something's and they're typically the guys you see out of Ananke, you know, and they're always filling with a saddle height or just moving it, micro adjusting little things all the time. And then I right. say and I, I reflect inwardly on this and in look at why do I in my career as a physio and elite sport did I have to spend so much time looking after comparatively small group of people compared to the size of the team I was looking after. And a great example of that is Geraint Thomas, you know, unless he actually falls off and breaks himself, which he's pretty good at doing as well, actually. But uh, he's a, <laughs> yeah. but he, 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 he could ride any bike. He just, he just absorbed, he adapts to any training plan, you know? Uh, I remember a coach once saying, I used to think one of the coaches used to coach Bradley said, he, he was saying to me, I used to think I was a great coach. And then I realized I was coaching him, <laughs> which means, you know, it's a, it's a great, right. uh, some people just respond well to, to training. And, and so your point there is that, yeah, some people you're going to have to do focus on the adaption side of it because not only are they going to get where they've got to do, they've got to get better riding the bike and better adapting to position, but riding itself puts a postural imposition upon them that they need to take away after riding. So for example, just some people get tight hip flexors and things like that, you know, and then the low lumbar back. And there's some what I call good oil exercises, which are just good practice. You know, you go out and you bike, you ride for hours and you come back, but you just do some um, simple things to take away the deleterious or bad effects of cycling, you know? But yeah, there is, there's always things. It depends how much time people have got to themselves and how much they want to do it. You know, some people just want to ride their bikes and they do the bare minimum. Other people would like to aspire to being, you know, as good as they can be. And that's great. And we, we did it. We tried to deliver things that make them happy in that goal setting environment. Certainly I've ran into it where cycling tends to almost be very acute. You know, it's 
it's the lower right back, you know, where yep. all the forces generated from, you know, you know, in, in my head, that's what I'm thinking. Well, oh my Lord, my lower right back is killing me. Um, but it's like this acute kind of spot, you know, where, where it's happening. Um, can you walk us through some of the most common injuries or, or pain, um, you know, symptoms that people see when they, when they, when they come see you or yeah. have when they come see you? So you're absolutely right. There are no, uh, force, but cycling, the, the bad thing that cycling has or, or, or you know, the, is the posture and position. You're right. So you, it's sustained. And if you're doing it for hours and hours, it's in the same place. So it doesn't have the freedom of movement. So we've got a couple of things to pick up on there is that, you know, let's just accept right now that all human beings are asymmetrical, some more, more than others, you know, so you mentioned your lower right back, but there, that's probably something to do with you, your injury history, your biomechanics, your makeup, you know, something that happens to you, mm -hmm. but you take that onto the bike, but the bike is completely symmetrical. Right, you know, the distance right. of the pedals does not change and it's locked in. Right. And as you say, you know, so the difference between that and running was running, you have this micro adjustment moments every time you land. So yes, those are sanctuary forces, but your foot, knee, hip and everything have this ability to share the load between them in a different way, you know, left and right. <clears throat> and we have to remember that we walk on bikes, really. We don't pedal. The predominant thing is we take the walking mechanics onto the bike and we adapt it into pedaling. But mm -hmm. so the most common things I see are, asymmetrical problems and they come they present themselves exactly what you just said so you know ipsilateral one-sided back pain um the weird thing is the most common cycling injury is a knee injury but the weird mm -hmm. thing is cycling's brilliant for knees because that's the first thing you do after any knee operation right so set up right, right set up right <laughs> that's the oxymoron cycling is actually fantastic for knees but the knee is the one joint if you think about it that's out there on its own in the wind our foot is locked into a carbon fiber shoe quite often maybe a fixed pedal system you're sitting you know and then your legs move independently away from yourself so it, it has to transfer all the power basically the rest of the body's fixed in this you know the, your lower back's fixed in one place so if that setup isn't ideal and you're working against it then that builds up in time that's like jumping into a hard car that isn't the right you know tight you get to the airport you've got a four-hour drive at the end of your flight and they give you the smallest car and you're six foot five you know <laughs> just that, that, <laughs> it, nobody's surprised when they get out of a really really rubbish car that they've got a stiff back but for some reason they're quite surprised after four hours of cycling they might be a bit stiff when they get off that it's the same thing you, you're locked in there you know moving around and it, interestingly during lockdown that's what we saw an explosion in in our uh, we, we um sort of clinic remote clinic um appointments was this um you, you double that down in cycling when you go to indoor or static cycling because then the right. bike and the bike doesn't even move so we've seen guys who 20 years riding the bike never had a problem blowing up knees, one-sided saddle sores, things like that. There are ways around that. You can mitigate that, and indoor training will adapt to that. You know, having a swift and peloton, it's not going away. That's for certain, you know, and I think people have learned that they can be clever with their time, you know, around their jobs with that sort of training, you know. But it is a different um, demand upon the body. So you're absolutely right. This. So the most common injury, I think it goes knee, shoulder, but shoulder is completely skewed by the fact that collarbone fractures in cycling are really, that's, if you're going to come off, Mm. you know so it's not necessarily sort of like shoulder impingement or things like that it's more like actually breaking your shoulder um interestingly the most dangerous um cycling sports i did a big injury audit over two olympics and it, it won't be surprising but bmx is i think was the, the most dangerous sport in rio uh, of any sport in the right. olympics wow uh, i know because it's, it's only going to get worse with freestyle right. coming in <laughs> um but mountain biking is quite dangerous and that struck me as quite 
I didn't see that coming. Then you think about where mountain biking happens. It's near rocks and hard trees. Unless if you come off, the, the environment is a little bit more dangerous than maybe sliding down a, a nice smooth piece of tarmac. So, but uh, yeah, it generally goes in that order: knee, lower back, and uh, and neck. Actually, is a big one, but along with shoulder. So we have to remember that some of these extreme positions, they're the equivalent of looking at the ceiling for the next uh, rest of this podcast, you know, so it would, um, yeah. it, it, it takes some effort, you know. Um, one thing I'll, I'll just pick up on that I forgot when you mentioned the adaptability, I do think there is, if your goal is to go as fast as you can in the most aerodynamic position, for example, what we introduced was a concept at my end of my time at BC of earned the right to go to the wind tunnel. So, if you're not adjustable mm. enough to go to a wind tunnel, you know, there's things that you right. can do to yourself. What's right. the point in going there? Because if you can't adjust to the new position, then there's no point doing it. So that, that earned the right to go lower right. and faster. Yeah. Put the effort. Yeah. In. Hadn't thought about that. I mean, you have this, it's sort of a triangle of aerodynamics, comfort, sustainability, and power output. And we're, no matter what, type of bike you ride you're you're thinking about aerodynamics comfort and and power output and that that's a that's a tough balance and you as you said not everybody earns the right for their i never thought of it that way earn the right for the for the wind tunnel um can you can you talk more about that comfort side i mean yeah sure um i I, i'm ashamedly my book says the three pillars of fit which is exactly what you just said you know there's aerodynamics power and then comfort slash sustainability because um comfort for some reason people think is taking it easy and my old bros adele bros said i don't pay chris Froome so many million euros to be comfortable but i said yeah but you definitely want him sustainable (laughs) in that position so yeah and i think you can literally divide every single bike position from um relaxed shopper through to amateur road rider to Mark Cavendish to extreme time trial to team pursuit, which is only four minutes long. They're all essentially what you're doing with it in those positions, is rotating the person around the bottom bracket. You know, that's what you're doing. And that comes with different right. demands. You know, So mm-hmm. every one of those, you could look at it with uh, sort of the lenses of um, the pillars of fit. Now, obviously team pursuit, four minutes, power and aerodynamics are massive, massively important. So they're very big blocks, you know, in our little say, pie chart or gra- you know, a bar chart and comfort and sustainability are really really low because it's only four minutes long so as long as i can stay there for four minutes that's it doesn't matter that's so that's a that's the goal whereas um, race across america it's a whole different thing you know you you have to be sustainable to, for hours and hours on a bike so all of a sudden those aero and power things come down they're still important because you have to generate enough power to move fast enough to do your best time but all of a sudden you know comfort and then for other people who might say Oh, see, you're going to get this recurring theme when we do it. It all comes back to the goal. If someone says to me, come in, I, I just want to ride my bike for three, four hours a weekend and not be in discomfort. Right. Okay. Let's make you comfortable. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Let's, let's go for that. And, you know, I think comf- um, there's a really famous guy called uh, Ben O'Nig who used to be up in north of you guys, even in Saskatchewan. And he ran a, it's basically, he used to assess all the trainers that Nike and Adidas made for, um, their ability to reduce injury and he had like a massive uh-huh. long career his retirement speech i think was really good he's got like 20 peer review papers the only thing he ever found that correlated with injury reduction in a running shoe and he's examined everything so you know the fanciest biomechanics you can look at uh, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go. The only thing you ever found that correlated was how comfortable it was when they put it on. And it's what he wow. termed comfort filter. Right. So I think sometimes right. we, we dismiss comfort, but what is comfort? It is an assimilation of all the different things you feel coming through your body and ends up in your mind and you decide whether that's comfortable or not. So it, it has subject connotations, but really it's based upon lots of little objective pieces of information, how, how hard, how soft it is, where it is, how it fits. Da, 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 da. And a bike position is no different, you know? Um, so if you feel uncomfortable when you get on your bike, it's unlikely to improve over time. You know? Right. It, um, yeah. So you, you might be fighting get, that's why we like removing the barriers to you achieving your goal because quite often people don't realize there's some quite simple things. So let's just take, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this later more, but a standard bike, a, a medium 56 is going to come with a seven, 172 and a half crank undoubtedly, maybe a 47 mm. centimeter wide bar. And bike companies have to pitch things somewhere. You know, if you don't know whether it's all those things differently, then they can't tell you. They have never met you, but... But crank length, for example, can really impede some people's ability to adopt a really good position. And it's like the elephant in the room, and they, they keep doing all other sorts of things. The other thing I realized in when I sat down to write um, my book on bike fit, which is aimed at just helping people who can't afford to go for expensive bike fits or things like that, you know, resolve their injuries and problems or achieve their goals, is that it's so multifactorial that you change one thing, you change everything. So right. you do often often meet people who disappear down this, what I call the rabbit hole of changing your bike position where they they go on forever they they start with one niggle they change one thing that solves that and then give themselves another problem and it just ends up in this spiral of um i'm basically not getting to where they want to be right we have to go back to to crank length because there's <laughs> there's so much there's so much to unpack there yeah. i mean i've even been thinking about it myself you know in prep for this interview you know should i should i go down um you know, you talk you talk about the the British team pursuit team. You know, this four minute effort. You know, in the eighties, nineties, when I was, you know, kind of growing up and doing cycling, it was all about big gears and long levers. You know, and leverage. Um, tell us about the the British team pursuit team, what they discovered, and and the advantages of this um, even shorter crank length. Yeah, so this has all been out there now for quite a number of years. You know, the research is. Um, out there by Martin and Barrett et al. And people, like it, it, it's solidly open, but people haven't really cottoned on to it. Some people have. And what you have to do, so um, crank length is important in maximal cycling, but maximal cycling is um, tra- track sprint cycling and the first two revolutions off a start line, typically. Yeah? Once we're in what we call submax cycling, is what we, we're all talking about here today. Um, uh-huh. Crank length isn't relevant to power production in itself, uh, as low as 80 millimeters is the first time becomes relevant and as big as 320. So what that opens hmm. up, is, what we're basically saying is crank length hmm. doesn't affect power production or performance, right? All it does is change your gearing. So if you're on 172 and a half now, Dirk, in the you know the little sprocket at the back, the big ring at the front, and we drop your crank length to 165, your your cadence just goes up. So mm-hmm. you just you'll adapt your gearing to correct for your cadence. So you have to consider crank length almost as part of one of three circles, the front, the, 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 the back, the right. cog on the bike. And so given that, <clears throat> when error positions are getting more and more extreme all the time, the problem with that is as you get lower at the front, the hip gets more and more closed. You start to bring the thigh close to the chest. That affects your breathing, your diaphragm. And even the knees are getting close to arm pads at you know, the front if you're running particularly on cranks. What we want to do is open up that hip and and. By decreasing crank length, that facilitates more and more error positions. 
the big thing I found right. though in, 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 is that crank crank length really affects comfort for a lot of people because it if you that crank length is too big. It's like a big circle that you're trying to get round while you're on the bike and you're trying to get to the front. It can really make reach so much more effective, so much more comfortable. It can allow you to move your saddle up and forward and get in a more powerful position. Remember, saddle height is ba- saddle height and um, setback are where power are. You know, the higher and further forward you are, the more you can activate your glutes. Hence, why track sprinters like you know, Chris Hoy, people like that, they have really high saddle heights, biffing and train massively off the bike. But that's the way they can be. If you're sitting way, as low and as far back on your saddle, all the best using your glutes in that in contrary into your mm. cycling. It'll be all quad centric. But decreasing crank length gives that ability. Now, in a world which we live in now, where we're largely um, become very good at sitting, so our hip flexors, <laughs> which we have to accept, the world is you know, we don't learn to ride bikes; we learn to sit, and then we go on bikes. You know, unless you're a pro. Right. Um, what we do with that is you, as a physio, I can tell you, when most physios spend their life unpicking the, the the lumbar pelvic spine from it sitting at a laptop. You know, sitting all day long. It's just um, we weren't meant to do that. We're meant to move around a bit more. But yeah, that, those, for example, the psoas muscle, which is the part of the hip flexor that. It goes through to the hip and inserts on the lower, lower bumper. If you can open up crank length, we don't really use our hip flexors to pull up on the pedal stroke. The, the clue is down the other leg, the two biggest and strongest muscles in the body, the quad and the glute are pushing down. So it doesn't really need to pull up, you know, and the, you know, most of the studies show that it's, it's absolutely minimal if it contributes anything. But what you will do is, that, going back to that car analogy, you're sitting in, in a range hip flexion for a long time. If your crank length is too long and big, then your hips get really closed. So, that's the reason why when you get off the bike, you're really stiff in your lower back because that hip flexor has just been sitting in one position for a long time. So again, crank length can, I use crank length to stop people having back surgery with it. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable yeah. the effect it can have sometimes. And, and given that it doesn't affect performance, it's a bit like stance width, you know, um, one thing that never really changes on the bike, you know, but why wouldn't you reduce crank length if um, it doesn't affect performance and it's inhibiting you getting towards your goal? So the and that's independent of how tall the athlete is. Yeah, completely. It just it isn't relevant. But that's what we used to be told, isn't it? And that's the great thing right. about our sport and cycling. There's certain myths hold true, don't they? But yeah, Bradley used to be on one seven seven and a half, you know, because he was six foot four, you know, tall right. guy. That was accepted, wasn't it? Yeah, but right. He he heard this chat before his hour record and went down to one seventy in one go. I believe dropped hmm. his front from. And 30 mil was about 3% wow. in CDA. So that's a guy who's already won wow. the Tour de France and he can hoover up right. those benefits, you know? So yeah, I think it's, um, for me, it's more fun helping people get over their pain, discomforts, the barriers to getting on. But yeah, it, it makes a massive difference in terms of elite performance. And I think crank lamps, the elephant in the room and a lot of people realizing their best aerodynamic position or their best literally performance position are getting into that place where they want to be. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Right. You know, in, in the U.S., you know, our style of racing really is road racing is criteriums and certainly cornering. I remember choosing my pedals based on how far I could lean into a turn and not hit my pedal. Yeah. <laughs> and I never thought about the crank length actually being a part of that. So yeah. another advantage there and mountain biking, too. I, I assume, you know, a shorter crank length with that acceleration, you know, quick over rocks. Um would be yeah. an advantage as well. Yeah, a mountain bike is really interesting because um, some people still run. Um, I think there's a, you probably know more about this than me, Dirk. But the, you know, if you're going up a really steep incline, some people do run big cranks in mountain biking because I think that is relevant. That because that's 
um, back to almost max cycling. You know, you've got very slow cadence, huge forces, aren't they? They're, they're trying to get up and above. Mm. So does it become relevant there? But again, you, you probably have to look at the overall, you know, how often are you in that position in a mountain bike race? And all those other things, like you say, clearance, you know, being able to get up and out, accelerate quickly, get over things, I think have to play in the balance. And I, I truly believe in about, it, I think the component industry will take some time to shift, but I think you'll see crank lengths moving down as more um, in tune and innovative companies take up the, the mantle with it and start to realize that that could be a better offering, you know, but it will take some time right. to shift. Right. Um, I've heard you say be- too that you know bike fitting for pro teams is the polish you know that's like the last three percent but yet for age groupers and amateurs you potentially could see upwards of 20 20 percent improvement and with that large of a change do you often have to have a, a like a a reduction or a change in the adjustability throughout time. So, Hey, ride this for the next two weeks. Let's assess from there. And then we might go to the next adjustment and then the next adjustment Uh, instead of all at once. Excellent point though. Yeah. We we definitely preach evolution, not revolution. So quite often in that process, once we get the person onto the bike, you know, we look at their, all their joint angles. We understand that measure the bike, see where the bike's at as well. We have saddle pressure. You bring all those, um, pillars of evidence together as you were and so everyone has a what i call a bike fit window there's no one position you know but the top and Mm. the top of that position is the most performance one but if you're out out the bottom and to the other side of it you know it it could it would can be completely remiss to tell someone just move them straight away this you know massive amount right and expect their because what will happen is their body won't cope with that and they will break down most probably so you're absolutely right you have to plan it. it elites it's a lot easier because as you say it's a one or two percent can be the difference between winning and losing that equally it's massively important but it is just polishing by the fact that they are where they are already you know they must be pretty good <laughs> so it, it's just it, it really is just the final tweaking but yeah people have got that that's why we leave a plan and we'll say look you need to make these changes out of here from day and then you need to advance in this way and um, we generally have some pretty good cool guidelines about how you would build that into your yeah, when to change things and how often, you know, um, for example, just you know, backing up, backing up rides and then making sure that you assess how you feel afterwards. Um, and that comes down to the part of body about the adaptation as well. If we're going on that journey and we've realized there's a reason why they were sitting in the bad, in the, let's say, less, less optimal position, then that will be consummate to them changing themselves as well. You know, so human beings generally, right. you start doing something today to yourself, you make neural changes in the first two to three weeks, but long actual physical changes take yeah, anywhere between four and six weeks to be there and then held onto, you know, so it can take that long to do those sort of things. Right. All right. Next question, because of team sky experience, two winners of, uh, from team sky of the tour de France used a particular piece of equipment that has never caught on, but yet they won the tour de France with it. Osymmetric rings. <laughs> Tell us ab- oh. about those. Your experience, your thoughts. Do they change the pedal stroke at all? Um, yeah. Uh, just I, why have they not? Why have they not caught on when they win the Tour de France? So that's an interesting question. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be boring on my experiences from time some time ago. So apologies if uh, there's any new research yeah. out there, but. When I was part of the team, uh, when we looked at this, what we could conclude was that 
whilst those symmetric chain wings wouldn't generally do any harm, they don't actually make anything better as well. They don't. Hmm. So, and the way I look at it is what I often found with people who use asymmetric chain rings, and you may have seen this, Doug, is that you often see they chop and change in between normal and the asymmetric. So they go on the asymmetric and then they might go, no, no, I'm going back to this. And they go back to that, you know, and it's, um, I think it comes down to that it's a circle. There is no free lunch. So if you if, if you extend the extension phase, which is the main benefit that I here talked about about you know you're extending how long you how long you can extend your lead, you, but you're in the recovery phase for longer. You know you can't you can't get around that. You know and the physiological studies that um, were scrutinised in my time there, we often found that uh, as per usual, yeah, you know, a lot of those studies that were in favour of symmetric trainings, if you look behind them, were actually paid for and sponsored by mm-hmm. companies who do asymmetric chain rings and then the converse true of normal ones. I, I've never seen, I don't think there's any problem in using them. Um, I don't, I can't, but I can't see how they can actually be performance bear wise. Other than remember, if you change anything, if you change your environment that you're working in, that will often produce a change in performance because all of a sudden you're, so you, you if you put on a asymmetric chain ring, all of a sudden you your body's trying to work out, hold on a minute, this is a bit different. And often that means that it performs better, it's more engaged, it's more aware, it's looking at all the muscles clearly, your feedback's better, and that's what you'll find, you know. It's a bit like walking on, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the foot, I think it's the most fascinating part of the body, you know, in that we could be walking on mm. carpet one minute, hard floor the next, grass, sand, it has to adapt to all that. That that feedback that you're getting through uh, an isometric chain with to be with. So what you'll often see in the laboratory conditions is um, change something like that and you'll see, an uplifting performance what i believe to be true is that they're, they're it all regresses back to the mean in the end if that makes sense yeah well we'll leave it as neutral um <laughs> try them if try them if you want no no downside but you might see some improvement might, um you mentioned yeah. the foot um i i personally find most cycling shoes just are horrible they're just flat boards um mm. and i need to get more kind of arch support so i i do get orthotics more for just some simple arch support um yeah. what's your experience around that um and 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 advice um you know yeah do you do you often um have people get new or- orthotics insoles? Well, yeah absolutely um cycling is unique in that the foot is in a is static in cycling so the only sport that's similar to it which i know you're into dirt because your geographical location is skiing now anybody mm-hmm. who skis a lot will always have their ski boots fitted won't they but as you say right. cycling not quite old. and you got the difference in cycling is it a bit like the ski boot is incredibly rigid if you you know if it's carbon fiber so and so right i've got a couple of thoughts on this i think yeah in it's not necessarily corrective you know sort of um um, podiatric mm. insult insoles that you need some people do need them you know even in in normal life and then onto the bike i'd definitely say if anyone's using insoles for walking pain or running pain then they basically they should have something in their cycling shoe that's doing the same sort of thing because that will only help but a lot of people just need us i think what you're talking about is almost like a space filling comfort orthotic which makes sense because mm-hmm. you, you if your foot's moving around inside that shoe then you're going to be losing power. It can cause pain dysfunction, you know, hot foot syndrome, pain, pains in the arch. You're absolutely right. Because what we do know is below the knee, you don't generate any more power. It's it, You only lose it in your calf, ankle and foot. Mm. But, but So what we've seen is when we made um, quite fancy um, carbon fiber bespoke fitted shoes for the Rio Olympics, 
which is mainly for aerodynamic reasons because overshoes were banned in the velodrome. But what we found with that as a coincidental thing, they were aero, these things. They're, they're beautifully, you know, made and have uh, just buy it to cast them all. And what you found is, anecdotally, some incredible increases in power in some of the in, in cyclists mm. that all of a sudden when they just changed to a shoe that fitted them. So not only are we right. looking at comfort, but it makes sense, doesn't it, that if your shoe fits you, you're not waiting, for example, to collapse the arch and pronate and deliver the power to the pedal. It's actually it's going straight through. And, and that's what we know from Anna ironically our paralympic uh, balloon knee amputee cyclists they're the most efficient huh. pedalers because they huh. it's mechanical huh. below the knee they're just literally so you have to put into that whole mix of um human beings comfort different you know but you're right Dirk. I, I think um cycling shoes have been traditionally a little bit more uncomfortable you know and uh, people often um will be looking for ages to find something that fits them my advice is that always look always try before you buy if you can but look for those right. ones that have a lot more adjustability in them you know so that if you've got a wide forefoot you can leave it wide at the front and then you can but you can zone in that you know that you can dial up the tightness through the fastening where you can do so i find that those shoes that offer lots of um adjustability through the forefoot and then through to the heel and those ones that come with a good you know good range of insoles you know there's some of them off the shelf or you can go and get a comfort one yeah but it makes a it, wow. no, i know for certain it makes a difference to performance, not only comfort, but why wouldn't you hoover both those up? It's a, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. So, so definitely not my first shoe in like 1982, which is <clears throat> Deto Pietro wood sole. We would uh, have uh, carpenter nails and we would nail in our cleats into the wood sole. <laughs> oh, jeez. Was, was, yeah, that, 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 was, was that slot cleats, was it? Where they used to slot across? Yeah, slot oh. cleats oh. with, uh, you know, toe, toe, um, toe clips and leather and all that. So we've come a long ways. Uh, probably a lot, lot, long ways yet to go, but thank you so much, Phil. Um, you have a book out. What, what is the, you mentioned the book. What, what is the title well, there's of a, that? There's, um, <laughs> I'm actually rewriting it at the moment. A second edition will come out um, in a couple of years okay. time, but um, first book was, was two books. Actually, first one's um, just uh, buy fit by Phil Burt. That's uh, freely available and um, has been, has done really, really well and, and helping get to people, you know, um, make them understand their position and they hopefully can overcome issues they may be having, you know, so that's by fit. And then there's a, I did a road book with the best strength and condition I ever worked with Martin Evans at Brave Cycling. And that's called strength and conditioning for cyclists, which touches on what we talked about earlier. What can mm. you do? That's quite, I think right. um, it's a nice little book. Cause it's got a bit of a, it's got an assessment process. So, you know, the problem okay. is that with any author, you don't know who you're talking to. You, know, you don't know the person who's buying your book, but if you take yourself through that process, you can identify things that we think are important to have in cycling, you know, uh, ranges of movement in certain joints or limbs and uh, muscles and then you it then gives you the exercises to remedy them you know so you can take it because not everybody's near great physiotherapist or conditioners you know and you can take it upon yourself to take those things so yeah they've both done fairly well and um it's nice to help people out the comments you get back it's good absolutely how can people reach out to you and find you uh yeah uh website instagram any of that yeah so well our website is uh philbertinnovation.co.uk um yeah we're on all those social media platforms i won't say i'm the, the most savvy at that in terms of getting back but good old-fashioned <laughs> we have a phone number there we have an email you know and interestingly you know um covid has been a terrible thing but um some of the remote stuff that we did i was surprised how successful that went you know in helping mm -hmm. people just as you said pros it's one or two percent but some people have like got 30 or 40 percent because you don't know what you don't know you know if some expert right. looks at you on a video and says 
look, if you do this, this, and this, I think you're going to be much better, you know? Um, and we've had some incredible feedback with that. So we have seen, we, we've done few, quite a few international sort of remote fits, which if anyone's really interested in, can't get what they're looking for, where they are, reach out. We'll see if we can help. We're always really honest. Yeah. Super. Thanks, Phil. As always, uh, hopefully we get to meet in person again at another conference or something, hopefully at a race. And uh, thanks for all the great advice. No, and thanks. Keep doing all the great work, Dirk. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. 